This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Well, I know there's been much uh, speculation about this, and Claudette, you and I spoke about this yesterday when we were talking about this whole concept of shrinkflation in addition to inflation when it comes to groceries and that but there's been a lot of speculation that another interest rate hike is coming from the bank of canada why you ask well um a bump in the country's inflation rate last month has some speculating that another bank of canada interest rate hike is on the way come september i reached out to larry short senior investment advisor with short financial a branch of ia private wealth in st john's to break down what's going on well hello uh, hi <laughs> so here we are um interest rates um there's a possibility they could rise again because inflation is just not stopping and uh, i understand that gasoline is a big part of that according to some of the pundits out there so can bank of canada rate hikes you know address that or where are we going uh, so a couple of points. One is that the inflation rate came in in uh, the latest report, 3.3% versus a forecast of 3%. So, you know, it doesn't sound like it's all that big a, a, a move. But what the central bank is concerned with is the direction. So the worry is that, that it's a start of the or a renewal of the spiral that we were facing before. So if you remember, um, interest rates, uh, sorry, um, inflation in June was reported at 2.8%. So we're seeing a bit of a pickup in in what the reports are. The, the other factor is um, the economy has actually been stronger generally than was expected. Um, another factor that the central bank looks at is unemployment. And uh, we'll actually get another report on that. I think it's coming up um, around uh, uh, somewhere around uh, the end of um, August that we'll get another unemployment number out. But in general, um, it's the change in direction from it being, you know, somewhere around that 3% level or even lower to moving up to that 3.3% that's caused the bank, the bank of Canada to at least consider an interest rate increase in September. So mortgage holders, of course, getting increasingly squeezed, especially those who uh, came in when interest rates were at uh, historic lows. What will this mean in the long term? So long term is really interesting. There's even discussion now out of the U.S. of uh, a 75 percent chance of interest rates being cut by next May. Now, again, as we've discussed over the last number of months, trying to determine uh, whether inflation has peaked or is near a peak is the is the major call that most people are trying to make at this point. People are trying to determine if they should lock in their mortgage rates now, if they should move away from variable, or even if they should move to variable. Um, a lot of these um, indicators uh, and you know recognize that economics is far from being an absolute accurate science. So uh, what looks like a relative small change in expectations from 3% to 3.3% is enough to cause the central banks to start looking at uh, raising rates. It kind of gives you an indication of how difficult it is to actually pin down um, the direction of interest rates overall. Uh, For people who 
um, are worried about their mortgages in particular, the key is to sit with a professional financial advisor, do that budget and say, what happens if indeed interest rates do rise in September? There's another quarter point added on to their mortgage. Or if indeed inflation continues to go even higher. So so for anybody who's listening who's worried about their mortgage, that's the actual step they have to take. It's with, with a professional and say, here's my budget, here's what things are looking, what do I do now? And make a specific determination for them. I can tell you on a worldwide basis, uh, Canadian and U.S. inflation, because Canadian and U.S. inflation tend to be somewhat close, um, look like uh, they're, they're the lowest uh, around the world. Uh, places like Britain are still having inflation rates of around 8.5%. Um, and then on a worldwide basis, uh, we're starting to see uh, China, um, the Chinese economy slow down dramatically, and it, it's about you know a fifth of the entire um, world economy. So the the prospects continues to look like we're close to a peak in interest rates, but we won't know for certain, of course, until we see uh, the most updated numbers. So do interest rates, Bank of Canada interest rates, tend to come down as quickly as they are, have been going up if, if there is that turn? Um, if, the, if we have a dramatic downturn, like the other dance that we've been having over the last year is can you raise interest rates and not kill the economy? That is, can you prevent uh, the economy from going into a recession? Um, and in past interest rate hikes, most of the time when the central banks raise interest rates, they've actually have put us into a recession. So the, the idea would be to still stay with an economy that continues to grow. And, you know, the growth rate looks uh, like it's still continuing. But um, on, on the other hand, we have seen a one of the indicators that the economy is starting to weaken is the unemployment rate picking up. And uh, between uh, last year, when the unemployment rate was 4.9% in Canada in general, and this year, we have finally seen some increase in the unemployment rate and that, uh, to 5.5%. And that's so strangely enough, that actually, it's, it's not, we don't want to see people unemployed, but we don't want to see a dramatic spike in unemployment. That's, that would indicate a recession is imminent, or in fact that we're actually in one. So the, the dance that the central bank has been doing has been how to slow the economy, not put the uh, country into a full-on uh, recession, um, and not cause you know some sort of crisis because interest rates have, have uh, been put up by the central bank. Um, if inflation is in fact a global problem driven in large part by gas prices, according to some of the stories out there. Realistically, uh, will the Bank of Canada's interest rate hikes ever be effective in, in their ultimate goal? Well, it's, it's actually uh, more than just gasoline prices. It's, it's also, um, you know, remember this time last year, we still had supply chain problems. You still could not buy, and I keep coming back to automobiles simply because that's the easiest thing that, that people can see when they're driving on, you know, Kenmount Road or their local main road in their local town is how many automobiles, new automobiles are on the lots and the, on the dealer lots. And um, so with the supply chain shortage that we had over the last couple of years, the answer was there were none. Now there are some, 
Um, so you can that gives you an indication that the uh, uh, problems that was caused by the lack of inventory, both on dealer lots, lots, and in um, you know hardware stores, etc. That has that part has eased. The other part of it, though, is that demand uh, around the world was so high for not just automobiles but things like flights um, that uh, we've seen uh, demand for everything pick up uh, significantly coming out of um, the COVID crisis, um, and you know to the point where there's there's this thought. Uh, you know, many people have said that. Uh, the world is moving off of oil, for example, but it turns out that oil consumption in 2023 is the same level as it was in 2019 before COVID. So with all of the changes that we've seen with electrification and um, wind farms, solar plants, etc., cetera, uh, we're seeing that uh, oil consumption around the world has actually come right back up to where it was pre-COVID. Uh, so it's the demand for everything that um, is driving inflation because if, quite frankly, if you don't want to buy that pickup truck, there are three people behind you who are quite willing to pay the full price to buy that truck, if not over, you know, more than full price. Uh, so the supply chain was one part of it. Then the follow-on effects was that the increased demand in general, that demand is continuing the um, not only just in uh, products, but also things like housing. So until that demand is slows down, then prices will continue to go higher. Um, and what we're still seeing is that prices have continued to, to uh, go up um, year over year. So do you expect then that uh, we'll see another interest rate hike come September? Well, just doing looking at the survey, you know, on uh, various other um, uh, in financial firms, you know, Desjardins, big company in central um, Canada, do, uh, dominant in Quebec, they're saying no rate hike coming. Scotia is saying, um, you know, the hikes have been done. Uh, McKenzie Financial are saying 50-50 chance. Um, more than likely, I mean, I think the overall survey indicates about a 30%, 30% of the uh, analysts are expecting that there will be an interest rate hike. But I guess the, the uh, key part is you really have to build your own financial structure on the basis of that there will be an interest rate hike because that's the way that you prevent um, you know, something untoward happening to your own personal finances. And that's why we keep recommending sit with a, a professional advisor and determine what the effect would be if not just a quarter point increase, but if we went up another full percentage point, what effect that would have on your personal finances. And if you need to start making changes in either your lifestyle or, um, you know, your other aspects or other parts of your budget in order to prevent um, a problem arising in the next number of months for each, for, for you as an individual. So I don't have uh, um, any other expectations other than we continue to watch and, to, and continue to react for our clients. Um, and that's exactly what you want from uh, your advisor. So whether or not there is an interest rate, uh, another interest rate hike in the offing, you need to be prepared. You need to be prepared. And I mean, remember, again, the discussions that we started, you and I started on this, was back in November of 2020. 
when we were saying that it looks like interest rates were going to rise. Now it does look like they're starting to peak, but whether they've done a final peak here, we don't know um, because the the vagaries of the economic numbers trying to, to pin down whether, in fact, inflation is at 3% or 3.3, whether the unemployment rate is at 55 or 6 all of those things affect the central bank uh, decision as to whether to raise rates further. It does appear, though, that there is a slowdown happening around the world um, and that that will have a longer-term effect with the probability that interest rates uh, start to be cut in the U.S. and Canada will tend to follow then um, uh, sometime around uh, spring of next year. Larry Short, uh, fascinating as always. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Larry Short, of course, Senior Investment Advisor with Short Financial, a branch of IA Private Wealth in St. John's. Well, coming up, recent tragedies involving ATVs in the province have safety and L seeking some changes to ATV regulations. This is News Talk on VOCN. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melody on your VOCM. And we're back. Well, Safety NL says the province's ATV regulations need to include practical training in operation of the machines. It comes in light of uh, two recent tragedies in the province over the last weekend. President and CEO of Safety NL, Sean Kelly, joins me now. Hello, Sean Kelly. Hello, Linda Swain. How are you? Great. So, uh, safety and L. Uh, this terrible tragedy on the weekend: two young women uh, dead in separate accidents re- related to ATV operation, and this led safety and L to issue um, a release on how ATV regulations need to include what you're calling practical training. What does it mean? Well, we're talking about actually training in the use and and operation of the vehicle itself. So a hands-on training component whereby you get to use the vehicle and drive the vehicle in in an environment off-road with a qualified instructor who can show you techniques on how to control the vehicle and how to, you know, lean properly into your turns, the type of environment you should avoid um, uh, that could be too risky, uh, you know, how to avoid going on very steep banks that would cause a potential rollover, which which leads to serious injury. So all of that sort of training uh, component is, uh, is in, in many ways very similar to what we provide on motorcycle training when we take you into a, a, a parking lot and we into our compound and, and train people how to operate a motorcycle um, effectively and, and safely. So it's that kind of training, driver training, motorcycle training, ATV training, that's what we do here. So does that type of ATV practical training currently exist? Are you doing that kind of programming now? We do it now, but we do it mostly for commercial um, um, operators and uh, and businesses. So some of the larger uh, corporations uh, in the province that require uh, contractors, for instance, or or some of their employees uh, to be uh, to be trained up to operate ATVs. So you know, uh, for example, Newfoundland Power or Hydro uh, operating in areas where uh, uh, they're out around transmission lines or something like that uh, and have to access them by ATVs. But we don't do a lot of uh, private uh, uh, private uh, operators. 
So uh, ATVs require, you know, a special set of skills, I suppose. They're very different from driving a vehicle or even a, a, a motorbike. Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm not an ATV rider myself, but I am a motorcycle rider. And I know that, you know, when I, when I first uh, became a motorcycle rider, I, I had to do the course. Uh, it's a completely different uh, skill set than, uh, than driving a car. So even though you may understand the rules of the road and, you know, you've been in cars all your life, um, you know, when you, when you get on a vehicle that's two wheels instead of four and you have to learn how to properly operate that, it, it, you require training. It, you know, in some way, shape, or form. Now, uh, it's best coming from a certified trainer, like Safety and Health, um, with a um, with a curriculum that's approved um, uh, nationally, and with certified trainers. And then you know you're getting good good quality training. So you want to see this included in ATV regulations? Uh, yeah. What well, would that entail? Presently, the current regulations require uh, people under the age of 16, youth under the age of 16, to uh, to have training and to be accompanied by an adult who is safety trained. Um, it doesn't yet tell you where or how to get that training, but I know government is working on developing an online training uh, program uh, to go along with the regulations. Uh, and I guess uh, we've had some input into that in the past, and um, you know, one of the issues that I see with it is that um, just an online training program, it imparts knowledge uh, about how to operate these vehicles, but it really doesn't develop competency. So in order to develop competency, you need a practical component. You need to be actually, you know, getting on one of these vehicles, turning on the key, learning how to to to, um, to ride it properly. Um, and that's the, that's the piece that's missing in, uh, in where government is planning to go with this. So, you know, uh, I've had discussions with government and uh, preliminary discussions about this, and I'm hoping that at some point in time we'll get uh, get around the table again and talk about this some more about how we can go forward with uh, adding that practical component to the training. Right, because you have to use your body. Exactly, yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, not everybody is comfortable getting on one of these uh, in, uh, one of these machines, and we've seen it with motorcycles, too. People come there with a desire to learn how to ride a motorcycle, and after they get on there and they try it for a while, they find, you know what, I'm really not that comfortable with it. I don't think I'm going to be that comfortable with it, so, you know, they back out of the training, um, and, and that's, that's something they don't learn until they actually start to, you know, have that experience of being on the motorcycle. I think the same might happen with uh, all-terrain vehicles is that, you know, somebody who has a desire to ride one of these really doesn't understand, you know, what's involved with that until they, they, they have the experience of getting on one uh, on their own and uh, and operating it themselves. And then, you know, maybe they feel that they're, they're uh, you know, comfortable with it and, and can operate it safely, and maybe they feel they won't, but they really don't know until they get that, that practical experience. Sean Kelly, I appreciate your time. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And Sean Kelly is the president and CEO of Safety NL. Um, government has uh, or is working on an online component for training when it comes to um, ATV operation, but uh, Safety NL calling for a um, 
practical training uh, requirement in the operation of those uh, very powerful uh, machines. Well, coming up, the Newfoundland Pony Society is turning to the public to help name a very special little foal. And I've seen her pictures and she's gorgeous, buddy. I'm really curious about this story because I'm wondering if it's the one that I petted a couple of weeks ago at the uh, in Hopal. It is. Oh, it is? Well, yes. I know the backstory on that and I didn't. A, it was nameless at the time. The it, foal she's was. She's still nameless. They're looking for a name for her. Oh, I got to show you. I was about to show you a picture on the radio. That's how excited <laughs> I am. I have a picture with her. Oh, how sweet. Well, we've got some pictures and we're going to have them up on VMCM.com tomorrow. <laughs> Looking I'm very forward excited. to it. Uh, but she has a very special little backstory, she as does. you know. And mm-hmm. we're going to hear a little bit more about that when we come back after the break. So uh, if you love horses, as horses, as they used to say, <laughs> if you love horses, Newfoundland ponies, you'll want to hear this one coming up right after the news with Richard Duggan. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. And we're back. Well, the Newfoundland Pony Society is encouraging the public to make submissions to name a three-month-old pony foal living with its mother at the Heritage Pasture and Park in Hopal, Trinity Bay. The little filly is owned by Kevin Dawson of Bay Roberts and has been captivating visitors to the park all summer, including VOCM's Claudette Burns, who had an up-close-and-personal... encounter with this cute little thing yeah i didn't realize the backstory until i went to hopal i went to that horse sanctuary because i just love animals and i was on vacation and i learned a little bit about the foal as well had to get a selfie (laughs) you just showed it to me it's absolutely adorable she's actually smiling (laughs) she is she's smiling in the selfie it just kills me i'm just i was just so i i can't believe it reached the news though the fact that um the it's an interesting story anyway I'm surprised you know when I was there I learned that the foal was unnamed but I had no idea until you just mentioned that they're doing a a contest yeah yeah Yeah, they are and we'll have all the details Mm -hmm. up on vocm.com tomorrow but it, that little filly, as you know, has an interesting backstory. Yes, very and, much so. And uh, a lot of people may remember it, as a matter of fact. So uh, I um, spoke with Councillor at Large with the Newfoundland Pony Society, Tammy Weber, earlier today. Hi, Tammy. How are things at Bay Roberts Way? Doing good. The weather's a lot more agreeable. We haven't got the high 30-plus humidity trying to cook us all. Thankfully, and thankfully. The ponies, the ponies were off into the shade. They did not like that hot sun at all. No, I would imagine. So how have things been going now at the uh, at the pony park down in Hopal? Going good. We've got a mirror of the foal down there this summer to, for the public to come in and visit with. The foal is, is getting real PR with the crowd. She's She loves to go up and greet people and check them out. And the people love to see her, of course, because she's such a sweet thing. So tell us a little bit about this foal. This foal is uh, owned by Kevin Dawson from his mare, Rhonda of the Avalon, Dawson's Rhonda of the Avalon. And it's a foal, very special foal, because her DNA is unique. She's the only foal to carry the DNA from a stallion that was young, so he only he bred a couple of mares and, and only caught with one of them. So this is the only foal from that stallion. Now, that stallion was killed in a tragic accident on the Veterans Highway 
last spring. And so we're lucky to have this foal so that DNA can be carried on. Now, the, in honor of that foal, we're, we're trying to make sure that people are aware that each and every foal is special and keeping stallions is not an easy task. They, once spring comes, spring fever hits and, and you know, they're breeding mares and, and they, they want to go find mares sometimes. I remember that story that was tragic indeed, but it's so uplifting to know that he did eventually sire this foal. Yes, that's that's the blessing, that his DNA can still carry on. Because he was so young, and and he only had a few visits from, I think, two or three mares at the most. So um, you've got to name the foal contest for this this little filly. As of yet, she has no name. Poor little no name. So, yes, we're hoping the public can help us come up with a, a fitting name or a name unique to, to Newfoundland words. And and if the family likes the one of the names that are proposed, then they'll have a new name for their foal. Young fella Tucker will have a, a, a hunter, sorry, young fella hunter who owns the foal when she comes off the mama. He'll decide if he, he likes one of the names that have been put forward and, and go from there. So how do people um, put forward a, a, a name suggestion? Well, when they visit the site at Hopal, the Newfoundland Pony Pasture Park, they can visit the foal, get to know her a little bit, and maybe hear the story from the workers we have out there, and come up with a, a name tied to that information or just something totally at the blue that, that strikes them when they see her. And uh, also, I think online we might have something on our, our website or our Facebook page definitely has mentioned that we have a name, the foal contest. So there's a couple of different ways. And we're doing it as a public awareness to how every foal is special and and it's unique to, to have these foals so they can pass on their particular DNA. And within the breeding program, you have to be careful of the DNA that you're you're keeping outside the circle where they're, where they're family members with each other. And you have to go far and wide sometimes to search for some, some genes that are not going to interfere with the family tree. For sure. So how have we been doing when it in terms of uh, Newfoundland pony foals this year? This year, we're on par with last year, I do believe. We're just above 20 countrywide. And I think there might be even one or two down in the States. But there's quite a few across Canada, a few in Newfoundland. And I think we're up to 20, maybe the mid-20s. So we're on par with last year. Last year was a very, we call it a bumper crop. We Last year we had a numbers up in the 20s as well and that's very good because we have a lot of aged mares we have a lot of geldings and and we have stallions who are not near mares and mares who are not near stallions so it's kind of hard sometimes to to get them together to have a breeding right and it does it make it more difficult that we have some of these uh, um, ponies now on the mainland and and you know that are carrying dna that might be really important here or vice versa well the the pony family here the pony people here if they have one that's that they would like the DNA to stay in Newfoundland, they kind of when they move their ponies from from breeding home to breeding home, try and pick and choose where they're going to go so they can make sure that the DNA is available to mares here. And then when we breed a few mares here, a good idea is to move them off to the mainland and, and get some mares up there bred to mix up the gene pool a bit. So you know, people who are are in the pony circle are familiar with the DNA that where it needs to be and, and where they'd like it to be. So we're slowly building the breed back? 
Yes, so slowly is is the word. We're we're cautiously bringing it back because we're a lot of people they're so spread out individually. Ponies here in Newfoundland are generally owned as family pets, and and you only have one or two. You can't have a stable of of six or seven or even a, a dozen. You know that's a lot of ponies to take care of. And our land base for family owned homes here in Newfoundland, the land base is not always on the acreage side, so you have grazing land to worry about. And then communities, we have to worry about communities whether the the town council is against having a barnyard with some animals. So we're we're up, it's an uphill battle still. We're we're still cautiously going forward. We do need to have more community support from town councils. We need to have some help for the the mare owners and the stallion owners to get the animals transported to one site to another. And even with stallions, you you've got to up your fencing. You've got to to make sure that if there's a mare next door. It's probably, you know, the owner may not want that bread, and the stallion sees the mare. He doesn't know the owner doesn't want a bread. So if it's not a Newfoundland pony mare, then, you know, the owner probably don't want that bread, and the pony gets out, you're going to have a breeding. So having a stallion is a very, very high priority on keeping them at home. And then when you bring a mare in, you've got to have facilities to, to house that mare, fence that mare while you have her there visiting the stallion. It's a lot of work to have a stallion, and not a lot of people are ready to take on that work. So we need to support the people who do have stallions and get the mares to them. It's much better to bring the mare to where the stallion lives because that's where he's familiar. The people around the neighborhood and in the community and the owners are very familiar with him and can help maintain his safety should anything happen. Right, and you mentioned that uh, stallions tend to be a little bit of escape artists because they're, you know, oh, looking for love yeah. in all the wrong places, maybe. Yes. Uh, yeah. And uh, some of our listeners may recall that uh, one of your horses, Strider, yes. managed to get out while we were on the air. Yeah, he, that day, like he's he, that day was the day he figured, okay, let's get some attention. <laughs> yeah, he got out. He put a rail down, stepped over, and was out grazing. Now he didn't go anywhere. He's not a stallion, so he's not going to be out looking for mares. So he stayed home, and he's quite content to stay home. The grass is greener on the other side of the fence, and that's what happened. How's he doing now? Good. We did pony rides with him at Island Pond Park on the weekend, and I had trouble getting him back into the trailer. There on one of our pony ride events, we had really hot weather a few years ago, and since then he's been trouble to get in and out of the trailer sometimes. Sometimes he'll go on in. Maybe the good weather days, he's, it's not too hot. He, he figures, okay, we can go for a ride today. But then he gets frustrated and he don't want to go in, so it takes some coercion. And doesn't that I got stuck and we stayed there all night, actually. I, was held, I spent the whole night with my pony, holding on to him because he wouldn't go into the trailer. So, then I ended up walking him to the Hope All Heritage Park because we were only a three or four kilometers away from there. So I walked him there and put him in a, in a gated area and let him have a, a bit of a rest and relaxation. I went and got him yesterday, and within 20 minutes he was on the trailer again, just a little coaxing, coaxed him with some food. And there was no distractions around in the campground. There's lots of distractions, people walking around and quads and traffic and dogs and kids and people coming to say, you know, you having trouble? Obviously, I was having trouble. And people wanted to help out. They gave me apples. And we found out Strider does not like red peppers. He's not a pepper fan. <laughs> I had all kinds of treats and people were wishing, wishing me well, but he just didn't go in. For whatever reason, he didn't go in. He's headstrong. He is, he's, and he's a big boy, so I just can't pull him around. He's he's a lot stronger than me. You have to kind of coax him and get on his good side to get him to do something. 
Well, Tammy, so glad you managed to coax him back. Um, really appreciate your time, and uh, we'll have some uh, links to where people can sp- submit names for this new little filly. We're very excited to, to have, and Hunter, the fellow, he, he owned the colt that got killed on the highway, the stallion, her sire. So he's very excited to know that he's having a family member of that pony, of his ponies. It's, it's really taken to his heart that, you know, he gets to hold on to a part of his pony through this pony. So he's quite thrilled about it, and and it's just, you know, children are the future of the Newfoundland Pony, and the foals are the future. So if we can get the children and the foals together, they've got a lifetime bond, or they can grow up together, and then sometimes family members will say, well, we're going to continue. We'll breed that, that mare we have or that stallion and continue it on. And if you can get a child on a pony, they're going to have a pony for life, and they'll have activity for life, good for mind, body, and soul for both critters. Tammy Weber, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good luck with the rest of your day. So there you go. And uh, I've seen pictures of the pony. I saw yours <laughs> where she's <laughs> grinning. Um, but uh, I've seen pictures of the pony and she was in a field and she was surrounded by Daisy. So, you know, which name I'd like to oh, give her. Wouldn't that be the most beautiful name? Daisy. Daisy. I oh. love that. I hope she p- they pick. So you got some information there. Like, they're always looking for a little bit of help and support. Yeah. yeah. Now, so I wasn't there, you know, at a radio capacity. I'm just being a tourist in my own home. So I'm trying to recall the conversation when I went to Hopal uh, on my vacation. And I was speaking to one of the volunteers there. And uh, she was saying, I believe, I think the government gave them all this land, right? Signed over hectares of land, which they really, really appreciate. However, I don't think the ponies have access to all of the land because they need volunteers and they need more money to put up a fence yeah they need fencing they really need fencing and they need people to donate their time and and their money and sometimes people don't you know don't don't think to go and uh, donate or give their time to the newfoundland pony society but there's an option for you yeah absolutely so if you want to do something nice and you got a bit of time now the summer help with the fencing so that the ponies can have do what they do best pony around be ponies be ponies absolutely (laughs) oh claudette uh thanks for that and we'll have more information on that up on vocm.com uh tomorrow well um you remember of course the situation in the province uh, last year when it came to avian flu and the impact it had on birds in the province especially seabirds that we're so famous for here um i was looking for a little update on the seabird situation and uh rob ronconi who is with the uh, canadian wildlife service is uh on the line so we'll uh, hear a little bit more about that when we come back right after the break this is news talk on vocm stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your vocm join linda swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you news talk on your vocm And we're back. Well, if you walked any beaches along the coast last year, chances are you may have noticed the sad spectacle of dead birds littering the shoreline. Avian flu had a devastating impact on seabird colonies last year, but what's the situation this year? Wildlife Emergency Response Coordinator with the Canadian Wildlife Service, Rob Ronconi, joins me now from Halifax. Well, hello, Rob. Hi there. So uh, you and I spoke around this time last year um, when avian flu was really having quite a devastating impact on seabird colonies all along the coast of uh, Newfoundland and Labrador and elsewhere. What's the situation this summer? 
Yeah, last year when we spoke, it was, it was pretty uh, it was pretty dire situation that we were observing. But you know, relative to last year, the highly pathic avian influenza has been really very quiet. Uh, but it has not totally left the landscape completely. So what uh, what does that tell you? What what might be behind that? Well, I mean, we're still testing birds. And, you know, just looking at this year alone, we're still testing birds to try to figure out where, where it is, where it isn't, which species, how prevalent it is. And we've been doing lots of things. We've been testing live birds. We've been testing dead birds. We've been testing hunted birds as well. And we're using that to try to track the situation. And, you know, in 2003, you know, January through till now, if you add all the tests together, specifically in Newfoundland, we've, we've tested more than 600 birds, live, dead, and hunted. And really, we're looking at only about 3% are testing positive at this point. Uh, that 3%, that varies quite a bit if you're talking about live birds or the dead birds or the hunted birds. But, um, you know, we're, we're in a much better situation than last year in terms of the percentages of birds testing positive. Any idea what kind of an impact it had last year on numbers of of, of animals out there? We do in a gross sense. Um, so last year, there were sort of three species in Atlantic Canada that were hit the hardest. Um, two of them very familiar to Newfoundland. Uh, one is the northern gannet. The other was the common myrrh and then also some uh, common eiders. But the common eiders populations that were impacted were more in the Quebec area. But we certainly saw a lot of northern gannets and common myrrhs that died in the Newfoundland and Labrador region. Um, the northern gannets in particular, you know, we have estimates of up to uh, 25,000 reported. Those were re- reported birds in Atlantic Canada and at least, you know, 5,000 of those reported in, in the Newfoundland area. So we did see impacts and we could see that at the colonies uh, where we went back to, you know, these were birds that washed up on beaches, but we also went to those colonies and did surveys. And we could see the impacts in the colonies last year where the numbers of northern gannets that were present was was really low. And we're even seeing dead birds in the colonies. So this year, you know, we're looking, we're going back to those colonies again this year. And that's really going to be the sign of how things are. We're not seeing mortalities this year on the beaches, so that's a good sign. But we're going back to those northern gannet and the common myrrh colonies to see how they're faring. And some of those colonies have been visited just recently, and we don't have the data, but in, it, it, there are still some gaps in the colonies, but we're certainly not seeing the mortality from last year. One of the colonies, of course, world famous, uh, Cape St. Mary's, you can walk right up to it. Uh, any idea if you know people, even anecdotally, are, are noticing a difference this year? Yeah, Cape St. Mary's is one that, that we work at with our provincial partners uh, from the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And it's a well-monitored colony, like you said, because tourists go there. And uh, the, the, the Department of, of, of Wildlife, the provincial department, they, they have a wildlife sanctuary there that they monitor as well. And that's one of the colonies where we are seeing fewer occupied territories so you know we, we try to counter birds by the numbers that are nesting and it's really obvious there where you, you see absence of nesting birds and there, are, there certainly are fewer but I don't have that final number yet you know that's one thing that we're working on is trying to figure out how many fewer there were this year compared to previous years. 
last year, and you mentioned it yourself, if you walked the beaches, you didn't have to go very far before you would notice, you know, something was amiss. Uh, you'd start to see some of the carcasses of these poor uh, creatures washed up on the beaches. Um, but this year, again, not noticing uh, it to the same degree by any uh, stretch. So what does that mean? Does that mean that uh, we're past this now, or are you always vigilant in case another wave should develop? Yeah, I, I I think maintain some vigilance. You know, we uh, we we've been mon- Canadian Wildlife Service and Environment and Climate Change Canada. We've been monitoring some of the beaches where we had high levels of die-offs last year. Uh, we've been going and checking them regularly. So in Newfoundland, that's um, been a couple beaches at uh, Point La Haye and St. Vincent's, and we haven't been seeing the mortalities there. So yes, that's a good sign. But we're still staying vigilant, and. Um, you know, we're ask, we, we are still asking the public to report any mortalities that they see, and that will really help us in the long term, you know, either this year or next year, you know, to monitor for, for these incidents. If anyone does happen to notice a, a sick or dying bird or anything amiss, um, how can they get in touch? Yeah, so in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, the surveillance efforts are being led through, uh, are, can be reported through the Wildlife Emergency Telephone Line from the Department of Fisheries, Forestry and Agriculture. So that number is 709-685-7273. Or you can contact your local forestry or wildlife offices with the province. Rob Ronconi, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. You're welcome. And Rob Ronconi is um, the Wildlife Emergency Response Coordinator with the Canadian Wildlife Service. Well, uh, that's it for us now, uh, Claudette. Uh, thanks. What's it doing out there now? Is that fog or is it rain? You know, it's really hard to see. It looks like it was a mix. When I went out at lunchtime, I was surprised that it was like almost like a spritzing of rain coming down. Not really rain, not really drizzle, but just like a fine just mist. Just the finest mist. Yeah, 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 you can just pick it up on the, on your wind, windscreen. Yeah. Um, yeah, so anyway, if it's wet where you are on the highways, keep your speeds down, of course. We've got that rutting in the roads. Water tends to accumulate, and we know what happens then if you get caught in that. So uh, keep your speeds down and uh, drive safely. Claudette, thanks very much, and we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone.